everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 26th of February 2014, and it is my great pleasure to be speaking to the geopolitical analyst William Engdahl. Mr. Engdahl is an author, professor, and lecturer who has been studying the interactions between international power politics, economics, and geography for more than 30 years now. And his most recent work centers in the analysis of the power of the United States as a new kind of empire builder, not just focused on military power, but also on the control of money and vital resources such as food and energy. He is the author of several important books on geopolitics, which have been translated into over a dozen languages, one of which I think is extremely important, and that is Seeds of Destruction, the Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Mr. Engdahl, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you for having me. Now, as it happens, I was alerted to your work in this area through a listener who drew my attention to a lecture that you gave at the Vatican on the subject of the Mm -hmm. hidden agenda behind genetic engineering. And that prompted me then to go and read your book, which, as I said, I think is a very, very important book, very detailed, very well researched. Now, in this book, you document how various well-connected, powerful elites, often with a disturbing history of involvement in eugenics, have financed and controlled the development of global agribusiness, including the so-called Green Revolution in the middle of the 20th century and the Genetic Revolution of more recent years. And you give many, many reasons why these historic connections between eugenics, control of the food supply, and now genetic engineering should be of really very, very great concern to us. So could I start by asking you to give us a brief overview of the argument of your book and perhaps give us some definitions of things like eugenics and agribusiness and genetic engineering, that sort of thing? Well, the idea for the book came from work that I'd done beginning in the 80s when the GATT-Uruguay round of trade talks took up the question of trade in agriculture products for the first time. And as an economist and an editor working in, in Europe at the time, I spent quite a lot of time going to Brussels, interviewing farmer organizations and so forth. And from there, I built a picture of the cartel of corporations that even back in the 80s were controlling European as well as American, North American uh, food trade, and especially in soybeans, corn, and, and uh, the basic staples for animal feed. So when the subject of genetic manipulation began to become a hot debate topic in in Europe in the uh, late 90s, 1999, around 2000 and so forth, uh, I began looking at it more closely and realized that I was on to something far different from what organizations like Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth were uh, complaining in terms of patenting of seeds and so forth. I came to the realization when I saw the name of the family and the foundations that created the Genetic Manipulation of Organisms project and pushed it through the U.S. Supreme Court to to make it uh, patentable and pushed it through the Bush Senior White House in 1992. And uh, once I realized that the family Rockefeller was at the heart of this, I had done uh, research on the Rockefellers going back to the 1970s and the oil shocks where Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, and the other seven sisters at that time had cartelized the world oil trade. That's no surprise to anybody, but how they uh, used the power over oil uh, to manipulate entire governments, economic flows, and so forth with the oil shocks of the 1970s. So when I saw the name Rockefeller tied to genetic manipulation, 
I knew this wasn't a humanitarian project. I knew this wasn't about world hunger because I knew a little bit about the Rockefeller animal, let's call it. The more I researched, that gave me an impulse that I hadn't seen in any literature or, or uh, uh, studies of GMO up to that time, and still not, frankly, in any major way. As I researched, I realized more and more that the eugenics movement, which the Rockefellers and families like DuPont or Colgate or uh, uh, Carnegie and so forth were major, major funders of going back to the 1920s and even earlier, that the eugenics, I'll tell you the definition in just a moment, that the eugenics uh, movement actually transformed itself after the uh, late 40s when the horrendous stories about Auschwitz gas ovens and, and genocide in, uh, in the Nazi period became public knowledge. And they, the head of the eugenics society, who was a Rockefeller uh, protege, got up and announced at the American Eugenics Annual Meeting, from today on, this was in the late 40s, from today on, the new name of eugenics is genetics. And everything having to do with microbiology, molecular biology, since 1938, when the Rockefeller Foundation created a fraudulent discipline of biology, this may shock a lot of your listeners who, uh, today, microbiology or molecular biology is uh, the hegemonic area of biology, and it's it's uh, sad because it's it's wrong. It's simply based on a wrong scientific methodology called uh, reductivism, and misses the truth about life. So, in any case, the Rockefellers began with a passion to try to do what they wanted to do with eugenics. They thought we could do this with manipulating the single gene, reduce everything in life down to a single gene, DNA, RNA, and so forth. And then we'll mess around with that gene and change its traits, its characteristics, so that it will do what we want it to do. So if you want a, a salmon that's uh, that weighs 80 pounds, so you can more economically uh, raise salmon for the market and chop it up into small bits and pieces, uh, you should be able to do that by uh, genetically crossing, crossing it with uh, uh, a foreign... Uh, substance. So they began this research in Philippines with the Rice Research Project, which was their baby. The International Rice Research Institute was initially a Rockefeller financed uh, area that would go after the main food staple of Asia, essentially uh, the bulk of the world's population. So they set out to make a what they called a golden rice. Why did they call it golden? Because it had kind of a, excuse me for being blunt, a urine yellow color when they genetically uh, manipulated it, modified it. And the idea was that they had modified it with a, a substance that would increase the content of vitamin A. And they promoted this, the Rockefeller Foundation, as the cure for infant blindness, vitamin A deficiency, uh, in Asia, and that this would allow many Asian children from impoverished families to be able to see, not to have infant blindness. Well, after years and $100 million worth of Rockefeller money research, uh, the product came out and independent scientists tested golden rice. And they found that an infant, an infant, a six-month-old or one-year-old infant, would have to eat eight kilograms of golden rice to get the required vitamin A to do what they claimed it would do. Well, that you can get from, from carrots and numerous other things that are quite much healthier. So that's a little bit the 
background of the GMO. And once once I got that hook into the subject, I simply traced out the history of it, and uh, my jaw dropped many, many, many times during the uh, the research and the production of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll stop there, and then tell me which specific terms. Uh, well, eugenics, I can. Yeah, the, the ones that I had in mind were uh, eugenics and yeah, particularly agribusiness, which we're going to talk about in more, yeah, more detail, okay. and g- genetic engineering itself. Okay, eugenics is simply, well, I'll give it a historical. It started in England uh, back in the late 1800s and the 1880s and so forth from a group, an elite group of, of people, the Huxley family were part of this and others, who believed that the lower classes uh, should be somehow reduced in number and that the upper classes, the, the noble classes, should have their characteristics increased. So they looked upon the human species as horse breeding, something that most normal people don't uh, think of. And then it spread, of course, to the uh, very wealthy in the United States. It came over the Atlantic so that families with the names like Carnegie and later Rockefeller in the late teens around World War I, they came in and founded the American Eugenics Society. Cold Springs Harbor, Maine was their uh, base of operations. And they began doing all sorts of research on how to get rid of the unfit, and how to increase the power and and the characteristics of the the most noble ones. And that's called good eugenics for the noble ones and bad eugenics for getting rid of the useless eaters. Well, uh, Margaret Mead was a part of their project, you know, the the battler for Planned Parenthood. And Margaret Mead was a uh, horrible racist. She was an intimate friend of the Rockefeller family who supported her work. And she started something during the 1930s in Harlem called the Negro Project. Is this Margaret Mead or is this Margaret Sanger? Uh, excuse me, Margaret Sanger. Margaret uh-huh. Mead was also a piece of work, but uh, uh, I'm sorry, Margaret Sanger, mm-hmm. uh, Planned Parenthood founder. One time, this is, I quote this in uh, footnotes in, in my book. Uh, one time she wrote a letter to a friend and said, if the black ministers ever get wind of the fact that the Negro Project is about eliminating the black population in America, I think we're going to have real problems. So eugenics in Germany after World War I, beginning in the 19, early 1920s, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes across Germany, especially in Berlin and Munich, began doing basic eugenics research. And the money, the money for the research in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes Right up until 1939, six years into the Nazi Third Reich, the financing for that came from the Rockefeller Foundation. Leading Rockefeller Foundation board members would come to Germany, look at what the eugenics research was with uh, forced sterilization of of imbeciles or lesser desired people and so forth. Uh, And they came back and reported to the eugenics uh, comrades in, in America. Unfortunately, we only talk about what they're doing in the Third Reich. And did that stop then? It stopped in 1939 for the only yeah. reason that it looked bad for the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, the war was beginning and uh, they simply stopped it. But after the war, the interesting part here is that they arranged, the Rockefellers arranged, or their their uh, network, arranged for the leading eugenics people around Dr. Josef Mengele, you know, the Dr. Death, the Nazi doctors, uh, for them to get safe passage to Canada and the United States where they could continue their experimentation on human beings and eugenics and so forth. 
Could you say something about the John D. Rockefeller's Population Council? Because this was operating in the 1950s and 60s, was it not? Well, right up to the present. Uh-huh. The, uh, John D. Rockefeller, the, the four brothers Rockefeller, shortly before the war opened, uh, divided the post-war world uh, among them, more or less, as a division of labor. And John D. was responsible for Asia, Japan especially, under MacArthur, or other way around, MacArthur under John D. Rockefeller III. And he was also responsible for eugenics, or now they called it population policy. So in 1953, he used Rockefeller money to create the so-called Population Council. And they financed the demography professorship at Princeton University, an elite university, so that people would uh, believe what reports were issued by this institute. And they began coming out with alarming reports about a world population bomb. Paul Ehrlich, who later came, came up in the late 60s and the 70s with this book called The Population Bomb, came out of these circles. And it was an utter hoax, but it was a hoax that supported their eugenics agenda of reducing population in the developing world. And is it is it right that there were actual historical examples one can turn to of sterilization experiments actually oh, sure. carried out uh, oh, under, sure. under the Population Council? Yeah, the two uh, cases that I document in the book, Seeds of Destruction, are in the Puerto Rico, which at that time was uh, and still is a, an entity that was a colony of the United States with no essential legal rights, uh, no sovereign rights. And they carried out secret sterilization programs of uh, childbearing age uh, women in Puerto Rico uh, when they had, after they had one or perhaps two children, they uh, would bring these peasant girls in, into a clinic and tie their tubes without telling them so they never could have more than one or two children. And it covered uh, over a period of years, uh, it was estimated that it covered, by the time it was discovered, that it covered... Uh, almost 50% of childbearing age Puerto Rican women. And this this was in the 1950s and 60s, is that right? Yes, yes, yes. And then they did a similar thing uh, in Brazil and Lord knows where else. But uh, they got more sophisticated uh, in 1973. John D. Rockefeller presented Nixon with a population strategy for America as an advisor on a presidential council. Nixon didn't want to touch it because he didn't want to anger the Catholic Church before an election. I think that was 71 or 72. And then Henry Kissinger, who was a protege of the Rockefeller brothers, Henry Kissinger was then national security advisor to President Nixon, commissioned a study. It's called National Strategic uh, Study Memorandum 200, NSSM. Uh, various freedom of information uh, petitions managed in 1990 or so to get the contents of this NSSM 200 uh, released to the public. And what it was, was really quite something. It was top secret. It involved the Defense Department, the Health and Education Welfare, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and the CIA, mm. and State Department, of course, USAID, etc. The, the essential document was that for the first time in history, population control would be an adjunct of American foreign policy and foreign aid. So in developing countries, they had target country, 13 target countries like Nigeria, Indonesia, uh, etc. Kissinger wrote, these are countries where the raw materials that America needs to fight the Cold War are strategically important, and they're also the countries with the highest birth rates, and 
they must be convinced to reduce their population because growing populations demand a growing share of the pie and we can't allow that to interfere with American national security. That was the argument. It's a rubbish argument, but that was the way they pitched it. And sure enough, what they began doing is getting the World Bank and the IMF, International Monetary Fund, to make population control programs a prerequisite for aid or financial bailouts or whatever. So if a country didn't have that, no ticky, no laundry. So would you would you say that therefore it's fair to say that the that kind of ideology then had actually infected U.S. policy by that point? Totally, it was official U.S. policy, but it was top secret. Yeah, and could you describe what effect this had on Brazil? Because you bring this out particularly in the book. Well, it had a dramatic effect on Brazil. The uh, the birth rates plunged. Uh, Brazil is is uh, a large country with an abundant resources. The CIA was also active in Brazil, uh, you know, with the 64 coup and various other things to try to create a, a U.S. subservient uh, vassal government or vassal state. But uh, it... it uh, uh, there, was there not a, a, a sterilization, a mass sterilization program that happened in Brazil? Yeah, I was just about to say that. They introduced a mass sterilization program in Brazil, which had catastrophic effect on, on the birth rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to turn to the second theme of your book, which is to do with the the massive growth of uh, U.S. agribusiness in the 20th century, which, of course, you consider alongside this this other issue we've just been talking about. Now, you describe the conditions for that growth by explaining that the Rockefeller Foundation poured a, a huge amount of money into the War and Peace Studies Group of the Council on Foreign Relations during the 1930s, and how that set the stage for what it hoped would be the grand area of post-World War II U.S. domination. And that hope was realized uh, in, in the creation of the Bretton Woods economic system, the yep. UN, the IMF, GATT, World Bank, and then that, in turn, set the stage for, for the growth and the domination by U.S. agribusiness. Could you unpack some of that history for us and explain how all that that enabled agribusiness to become a tool for globalist control? Well, right after the war, Nelson Rockefeller, in this case, who was the expert of the family for Latin America, had been the head of the, uh, essentially, a, a separate CIA, CIAA for Latin America under FDR, under Roosevelt. Nelson Rockefeller had the idea that if we could do to food what we have done to oil, namely create a monopoly, a cartel that we control, then as Henry Kissinger said years later, you control the oil, you control entire nations because you control their economy. If you control the food, you control the people. And that has been the dream of the eugenics movement since its founding, how to do this in a mass way. So Nelson had the idea to take a Rockefeller University employee named Norm Borlaug down to Mexico and to investigate the possibilities of industrializing the agriculture there. He uh, began a project in uh, the northwest part of Mexico in the direction of Arizona and and California, a very fertile agriculture area of of, uh, Mexico with large acreages of flat land. And he introduced mechanization, which was a nice outlet for selling Rockefeller oil and, and diesel fuel and various other things, lubricants. And he introduced large-scale agriculture concentrations with so-called wonder wheat, the so-called Green Revolution. Well, that was a fraud that the Rockefeller money uh, financed and created to industrialize the agriculture to the advantage of the large 
in Spanish they call it latifundistas, the large plantation owners. Uh, the small farmers were, in effect, uh, put out of business by this concentration of land and, and resources and mechanization. Uh, so suddenly millions and tens of millions of uh, unemployed Mexican peasants were driven to go to the cities. And that was part of the aim, too, because then they used that as cheap labor pools for uh, outsourcing and globalized uh, manufacturing. So they had, they had kind of thought through a, a grand strategy on this. The War and Peace Studies was a secret, another top secret project of the Rockefeller Foundation. Began in 1939 with some of the leading geopolitical strategists. Uh, Isaiah Bowman, the president of Johns Hopkins University, was one of the leading figures of it. He was a geographer a geopolitician on the model of Alfred Mackinder of Britain. And what they did was look at before the first German panzer had rolled into Poland in 1939, September, they began a project with the premise. The starting premise was there is coming a second world war. America is going to emerge from this coming war as the sole superpower. Where have we heard that before? Uh, the British Empire will be in decline, catastrophic decline. The German Empire will be destroyed, as will the Soviet Empire and uh, Japan. Of course, that was a minor thing in Asia. And uh, we have to plan now for ruling this post-war world. Well, that was called the War and Peace Studies. They literally took every part of the globe, identified pivot countries, countries, if you control them, you have leverage to control entire regions like South, Southeast Asia and so forth. And that defined U.S. post-war foreign policy because the architects of the War and Peace Studies in the middle of World War II, in an arrangement with the Secretary of State and, and with Roosevelt, were sent into the State Department to shape that policy in application. Then uh, every Secretary of State from Eisenhower on, John Foster Dulles, Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew so Brzezinski, etc. Well, he wasn't a Secretary of State, but but every Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, was connected with the Rockefeller family intimately. Chairman of the Rockefeller Foundation, etc., uh, etc. Et mm. So it was the implementation of the Rockefellers' war and peace studies that defined U.S. post-war foreign policy. The agribusiness began in Mexico. It later came with the uh, also support of the Ford Foundation to India. The first reports of the wonder wheat, the miracle wheat that Borlaug had had uh, made as a hybrid variety of wheat, withstanding weather uh, extremes and so forth. The first harvest yields were were positive, or at least they reported that they were very positive. So that gave an impetus to governments to continue with this. Uh, until the point that the damage had been done and they were firmly entrenched with agribusiness in these two countries, uh, one of the most populous countries, India, and also in, in Mexico to spread the uh, green revolution down through Latin America. So, so would, you, would, would you say that as far as the Rockefellers were concerned, they would see the green revolution as an, an outplaying of this strategy that they had in mind for, for the domination of the grand area, whereas people who are actually working scientifically within that wouldn't, wouldn't have much of a clue of that that was in fact the agenda that was going on? Well, I don't know how much of a clue Norman Borlaug had or whether he was simply a naive scientist who believed in what he was doing. 
But at a certain point, he would have to have realized that uh, his wonder miracle wheat was, was not uh, what it was cracked up to be. A lot of innocent scientists uh, who are politically naive and don't bother to look at the larger picture implications of what they're doing play a crucial role in all of this. If they were aware of the moral implications for the human race, they uh, perhaps would have uh, long, long ago opted out and uh, become whistleblowers. Now, I want to move on to uh, the question of genetic engineering. And um, you say that genetic engineering in the food industry really got going during the Reagan administration and the Bush senior administration, um, largely due to their culture of deregulation. Yes. So even though there were concerns about the health effects of various GM products, uh, it all just went ahead anyway. And uh, you mention a few of the most famous cases like bovine growth hormone in milk, BT corn, golden rice, which you have already mentioned in this interview. Could you tell us something about the claimed benefits of those products and also some of the problems? Well, the claimed benefits of bovine growth hormone for cattle, for milk cows, dairy cattle, was that it would increase milk yields by 30, up to 30 percent uh, for a given herd. Well, what they didn't tell you is that it did so initially at the cost of the health of the cow, such that the cattle developed uh, diseases, it developed uh, brittleness of bones that uh, simply because they were losing uh, so much of their, their own uh, nutrients, the bones became brittle and the cows couldn't stand anymore. They collapsed, horrendous side effects. But that bovine growth hormone is still being peddled in the developing world where they presume that the farmers using it are less uh, intelligent than the North American farmers or European farmers. So uh, that's simply one example of, of, of some of these horrendous GMO products. Mm. And you say that the golden rice, which was sold on the idea that uh, it contained all this extra vitamin A and was therefore going to sort out a lot of blindness problems for people, that actually the amount of uh, vitamin A in there is actually not up to doing the job. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, an infant would have to eat eight kilograms every day to get the required vitamin A that they talk about. So it's, it's just a fraud. Yeah. They use it as a PR lever to convince naive people that this is the kind yeah. of good things we're doing with GMO. Yeah, well, absolutely. We've we've had that just last year. Our environment secretary, Owen Patterson, over here was saying that you know anybody who opposes GM crops, and he was talking particularly about golden rice, he described them as wicked. He said, disgusting. The little children are allowed to go blind and die because of the hang-up by a small number of people about this technology. I think Mr. Patterson should do a little bit of his homework. I, uh, I've read several comments on GMO by by him over the last year or so. And I think the man is uh, should think and uh, understand and research before he opens his mouth. And it also came over in your book is the tremendous power that the GM corporations seem to have to silence any scientific research that challenges what they're doing. I mean, you discussed the case of Dr. Arpad Puchtai at the Rowett Institute in Scotland and how the GM industry sort of leaned on politicians and leaned on learned societies to basically shut him up. Could you tell us briefly about what happened there? Well, Arpad Pustai, who's a dear personal friend of mine, was perhaps the most respected uh, biology researcher on, on GMO in the world at that time in, in the mid-1990s. At that time, he told me he was a firm believer in the progress of science and that GMO was part of that. So he convinced the institute uh, director that they should do, with, with British government financing, they should do a study, animal study, on uh, rats fed with GMO potatoes. And everybody was quite agreed. And I said, this will ease the concerns of the population about eating GMO products. So 
what began to appear in the rats fed with GMO potatoes compared with the controlled rats was organ shrinkage of a dramatic nature and mortality rates much higher than the normal control rats. And the most alarming thing that he saw was shrinkage of the brain, kidney, liver, all these organs were affected in, in grotesque ways. So he told his director, the director got equally alarmed, and Pustai held a interview with ITV, I think it was, or Channel 4 in the UK, and that thing went viral. It went to worldwide press releases because there was no such research, uh, serious scientific research by a recognized institute like Rowett. Then, within 72 hours, roughly, Pustai was approached by his director, told that his desk had been locked, his computer had been seized. He was to talk to no colleague. His wife also worked there. She was also told a similar thing. And that they were not to talk to any press about his research. Essentially, they destroyed this man, destroyed his career. He didn't give up. He kept uh, fighting for exoneration, which he finally got from the British Parliament. He got a personal apology from Prince Charles. That's very much to the prince's credit that he had the moral gumption to personally apologize for what the British government had done to uh, Pustai. And what later came out, he found out later from retired colleagues, that the night after this release of, of the uh, Pustai uh, news report on the damage of GMO, the director of the Institute, Rowett, got a call from a man named Tony Blair, who was then prime minister. Tony Blair, he later found out, reacted on a call from William Jefferson Clinton, then the president of the United States, who had gotten a call from Monsanto in Washington saying, essentially, shut this man up no matter what you have to do. And that's what they did. They got the Royal Academy of Sciences to lie about uh, Kustai's scientific report. Uh, it was absolutely a, a horrendous uh, attempt at character assassination. It did not succeed. And that's one reason there's such a resistance across the world today to GMO. Yeah. And you mentioned Monsanto, and I want to ask you about that uh, to do with the using GMO for domination. You highlight in the book Argentina and Iraq as countries that fell prey to GMO imperialism. And uh, you, you paint a particularly disturbing picture of Argentina with a massive corporate buy-up of land there in the 1990s onwards. And uh, the virtual takeover by yeah. Monsanto with its Roundup Ready soybeans. Could you tell us something about Monsanto and that Roundup technology and just how powerful that that has been to uh, control things? Well, uh, it's useful to keep in mind uh, when we throw out all the silly arguments that people like uh, Mr. Patterson uh, in the UK make about the wonder, wonderful benefits of GMO. The only commercial crops of any uh, significance today on the world market for GMO are GMO soybean, and the overwhelming majority is Monsanto Roundup Ready soybeans, and GMO corn, and then GMO cotton. Uh, Monsanto dominates all three of those. There are three countries that are the main growing countries today in the world for soybeans, Argentina, Brazil, and the United States. The climate is ideal, the, the tradition, and so forth. Those three countries are dominated by the American-based grain cartel, Mon uh, Cargill, Archer Daniel Midland, Bungie, and, and so forth. So all the trade in, in the soybean seeds worldwide is, is carried by these, these cartel companies. And the seeds are dominated by Monsanto, all of them. So in the debt crisis of Argentina, Carlos Menem, who is perhaps one of the more corrupt of the corrupt in Argentine politics then, 
he was president and he gave a secret license to Monsanto without any parliamentary discussion or debate, uh, exclusive license uh, for Monsanto to plant its genetically modified soybean seeds in Argentina. Then because of the debt crisis and the role of the IMF telling Argentina to devalue its peso and uh, the usual things, people like George Soros, the billionaire uh, uh, from New York and, and others, the, the Rockefellers, began buying up huge amounts of agriculture land. The peasants that had farmed the land, Argentina used to be have one of the highest food standards in the 1960s and 70s in the world. Uh, the peasants, the family peasants, farmers, were driven off the land, often with police behind these giant landowners, and mechanized agriculture in the form of planting soybeans with satellite-guided uh, tractors that would work 24-7, and various other things, no tillage uh, agriculture, that this required virtually no human labor. And not only that, they planted Monsanto GMO soybeans. The GMO soybeans are paired, that's called Roundup Ready soybeans. It's ready for what? It's ready to receive the world's most deadly herbicide called Roundup patented then by Monsanto. The patent has expired and now the Chinese and everybody and their mother are uh, replicating this, reverse engineering it and putting it on the market more cheaply. But this Roundup is sprayed on the fields, aero sprayed with airplanes, crop planes, puts these toxins into the GMO uh, soybeans as well as into the soil. And I think we're going to have to make this the last point because I have another appointment uh, in I see here. Uh, just let me let me conclude it. Okay. So uh, then uh, Brazil had strict laws. Uh, this was when Lula was president, a jolly, happy uh, trade union leader who apparently sold his soul to more than one devil in his tenure. But uh, Brazil was uh, constitutionally banning uh, genetically modified uh, agriculture planting, GMO. That began to be eroded by Monsanto. They made sure that the Argentine fields on the border to Brazil would uh, plant GMO, and and then the wind would carry the seeds into Brazil and contaminate the uh, Brazilian soybean crops. So eventually the government buckled under and uh, about six, seven years ago permitted GMO to be planted in Brazil. Then in the United States, from the get-go, George Bush Sr. in 1992 met with the top leadership of Monsanto in the White House, a closed-door meeting, nothing reported about this, and they convinced Bush Sr. to essentially prevent the U.S. government, health and safety agencies of the government like Food and Drug Administration, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, and, and so forth, from doing any independent testing of any GMO product. It was called substantially equivalent, which is a fraudulent legal term, because substantial means not 100%. It means roughly, and equivalent means 100%. If two is equal to two, it's not equal to three. But the substantial equivalent is two could be equal to three in our world. So that allowed Monsanto to do its own studies, give them to the government, say this this uh, GMO soybean is completely healthy, no, no bad effects, etc. So... After 92, GMO soybeans were sold to the American farmers as a solution to increase their profits in tough times. They bought it, they planted it, 
and now almost 93% of all soybeans in the United States are GMO. Okay, and as we have only only about a minute or so to go, could I ask you to sort of conclude by uh, coming back to what we were discussing at the beginning, the issues to do with population control and eugenics, and could you explain to us why you feel it is so important that we take this issue deadly seriously because of those historic connections, because of these massive businesses, our food supply being in, con- in the control of very few hands. Could you spell out to us what you fear could happen in the future? Well, I think if the... Staple food products, uh, corn, soybeans, rice in Asia, uh, and so forth, are controlled by three or four GMO giants like Monsanto, DuPont, Dow Chemical, Syngenta in in Switzerland, with partnerships in BASF and Bayer and so forth. If the world essential food staples are GMO, controlled by three or four giant corporations, three of whom have a history with Agent Orange with uh, dioxin, with other poisons, and a history of uh, walking away from their legal and moral responsibility for the damage those products have done on human populations or others. I think we run a danger that the control of the world food supply in 10, 20 years, if GMO is allowed to proliferate as an uncontrolled uh, plague, the control of the world essential food supply will be in the hands of those private corporations. And that's a power that the human race has never allowed in history. It's a danger. Power corrupts, and this kind of power corrupts absolutely. Well, they've also, Monsanto has the patent since uh, about five years on terminator seed technology, patented, co-patented by the U.S. government, by the way, such that the seed will commit suicide after one harvest. And that, combined with, with the other uh, work that the Rockefellers and others have done on eugenics, led me to the conclusion that this is a covert war on human population by people who are very powerful and want to reduce the human species by a number of billions of lives over the next decades. Reduce it. Well, it's a very, very, very serious situation that we're in. I do agree. And there are so many things that I'd love to have talked to you about, including the TPP and TAFTA and uh, various things of that nature. We just do not have time to go into. So may I say, William Engdahl, thank you ever so much for coming on. I will, of course, link to your book in the show notes. And I encourage every listener to go and read that book. I think it is so important. So thank you ever so much, Mr. Engdahl, for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you, Julie.